Hello, my name is Celia Hirsch, and I'm a volunteer with Igniting Change, an intentionally tiny but outcome-mighty organisation based in Melbourne, Australia. Igniting Change has walked alongside many individuals and organisations making a difference, usually working with very thorny issues in decidedly unsexy areas. It's unlike any charity you may have previously encountered, and its catchphrase is, see the person, not the label. What we are seeking to do with this podcast is introduce you to the people of Igniting Change and the people we work alongside. Today, our guest is Jane Vadavalu, the CEO of Children's Ground. Hi, Jane. Hi, Celia. Jane, can you tell us what Children's Ground is? Children's Ground is a national not-for-profit organisation working with First Nations communities, led by First Nations communities, with a 25-year platform to redress intergenerational disadvantage and inequity and at the same time celebrate our history and knowledge of First Nations peoples. How does it actually work? How, how do the First Nations people get involved in, in the education system? Uh, well, First Nations people really helped us design... Well, they were the drivers and the designers of Children's Ground. Um, after many years of working in the field in the Northern Territory with incredible Aboriginal leaders, um, the vision and the view of First Nations people has been consistent since then. Children's Ground is really designed as an alternative to the current system that continues to fail, particularly First Nations people. So it's redesigning that system, ensuring the governance and the leadership um, is structured so it comes from the people, ensuring that the approach is consistent with first cultural values, laws, systems and knowledge so it comes from the land, from community. So the education system, the health system, the economic system, the cultural system, community system is all integrated in a way that reflects First Nations systems and societies. So it means working with the community, working over 25 years, working with every child and family across that community to ensure everybody has access to high-level opportunity from early childhood right through the learning journey into adulthood. But really doing that in a way that understands the intergenerational nature of First Nations communities, being place-based so it's designed and delivered and can be responsive to the realities where people live. What were some of the major stumbling blocks with trying to integrate First Nations people into the inverted commas regular education system? Well, the mainstream education system really comes out of the design of Western education systems that, you know, I think globally everybody is saying is not meeting you know, the more contemporary needs of our society. It comes from an industrial age. It comes out of that sort of factory period of time. And the structure and systems are designed for, really designed for English language speakers and English language culture in a sense. So what we know pedagogically around the world is kids will learn better from their first language and their first culture. So kids, you know, from any international country whether it's Germany or China or Italy, they'll go into a school in their first language, but they are all multilingual. You know, people still learn to read and write English by and large because of the global community we're in. But And there are places around the country where, you know, New Zealand and Hawaii that have First Nations education systems and have had them and grown them over 30 years. And in Australia, we haven't done that. So we've never allowed... First Nations children to enter an education system that they will be confident in or an education system that is in their first language and culture. So the biggest barrier is that children 
are coming into the, a system that's designed not by them or for them. And when they're hitting stumbly blocks, if English is a second, third or fourth language, if they're coming out of overcrowding and poverty or poor access, then there are just so many, many barriers that they're facing. And where, if that system doesn't work for them, most often it is them and their families that are blamed. So we're recreating it to ensure that kids and families don't fail, that they're going into a system that they are confident in, that they are privileged in, that they will succeed in on their terms. So you said it's a it's a 25-year plan. How many years into it are we? We have been operating for nearly five years up in the top end and um, we're working with a small community of families up there now who we've been on that journey with over a period of years but we've shifted location with them so there's been some shift and in Central Australia which is really where the genesis came from over 10 years ago we only only started back there about two years ago. So we're only two years in, so we're at the very beginning of a very long journey. And what are some of the things that you're seeing? What What are some of the changes in the children over that time? Oh, it's incredible to create an environment that people um, people's voices and their leadership is empowered. It brings people hope, the belief that they'll be heard, um, a sense of belief that things can change. And with hope because it's around children everybody mobilizes about around their children everybody wants their children to have the very best nobody wants to live in poverty and all first nations people i know want their kids to know their land their language their culture and be numerate and literate in western in in english you know context so what we're seeing is engaged children incredibly excited every day to to be coming in and you know oh there's a children's ground for us and families walking alongside them because we it's designed understanding that aboriginal education systems are intergenerational systems of education so it's the families that must teach the children so we have cultural specialists in education first cultural specialists as well as western specialists working side by side as equals in the learning and well-being journey of children and we're integrating well-being so you know the changes our kids are coming families are coming they're empowered they're excited they're hopeful for the future they want to learn oh absolutely they want to learn yeah Mm. Mm. i noticed when when i visited that there were a lot of grandparents involved Mm. that's very special and something that we miss out on a bit in in the west Mm. what sort of involvement do the grandparents have in the community grandparents are critical and first nations and first peoples that i've worked with anywhere in australia it's what what i'm always told is you cannot have a child without a grandparent and the role of the grandparent is critical in the raising of the child, the educating of the child, the support of the child. So the grandparents are there as professors, they're there as um, cultural educationalists. Often they're there as really superior linguists because they hold the very old language and they're still often using that language. Um, some of them are authors, some of them have written you know, dictionaries, they've written curriculum in the past. So they're both content specialists as well as cultural specialists in the education of children. And they're pretty hot on the behaviour as well, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they absolutely regulate and manage behaviour and that's part of the key role that they've always had in, in families. You talked about how no child can't have a grandparent. So if they don't have a, an actual grandparent, they get other grandparents? Is that how well, it happens? Well, I mean, there's incredible strength. If you think that, you know, First Nations communities in old peoples in australia from the west now say sixty-five thousand years and there's great sort of sophistication in that system and part of it is around the social system so a child doesn't have a just simply a biological parent or parents 
all of their uncles and aunties are also their mothers and their fathers and their what would be their grand you know uncles aunties are also their grandparents so children have multiple grandparents it's, it's very rare for us to find a child where there isn't a grandparent unless that generation has passed away, in which case they have parents and aunties and uncles, but mm. quite many of them. The system is funded how? It's funded through in- incredible power of philanthropy. Um, we've, we went into this journey and we had some fabulous thinkers around this. There's a quite an ambitious systems change model. How do you create change over 25 years, over a generation, within political cycles that come and go and change and and it became evident that we really needed philanthropy involved over that journey and also to hold the risk. We're not doing things in the mainstream way. Um, There's risks in that because lots of communities have a lot of stresses they're also dealing with as well as a lot of strength. But it's been philanthropy that led the charge for us. um, Just incredible philanthropists that have come on board with an outcomes-based approach, not saying we want to buy this little bit or that little bit, collective long term we're going to stay the long haul and doesn't mean we're not accountable every year year in year out but yeah philanthropy's been critical how did igniting change come into the picture well igniting changes have been with us before we even began so um the incredible jane tewson who uh leads and founded igniting change we met many 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 years ago in central australia and neither of us can quite remember how we met but um over the period of time, a lot of the work that I was involved with prior to Children's Ground informed that approach. And so Igniting Change um, has actually been involved with quite a few things in Central Australia that uh, I've been involved with over the last 15-odd years. And, you know, from supporting uh, disability services, you know, for washing machines to, you know, art centres and you know, healing centres and cards for healing centres and things like that, right through to the beginning and the genesis of Children's Ground. So as Children's Ground evolved out of many things, Igniting Change have run a number of trips into Central Australia with their philanthropic um, family, and we've been doing that now for many, many years. And it's an incredible connection that we have. And through that, Jane has introduced wonderful people to a lot of work, not just ours, but a lot of other people's work. When people get to see and connect directly with people, which is the most critical thing, to hear the voices of the grassroots, to hear the voices of those who are the experts in their own issues, to understand their aspirations and hopes. The Igniting Change family of supporters are quite extraordinary and they connect at a very human level. So some of those funders were our what you call angel funders even before we started with something they allowed the dream and the ambition of children's ground to come to life and do you think children's ground would be as healthy as as it is now if not for that support oh absolutely not you know that's just been critical to us and we are very lucky to have a broad group of amazing philanthropists but certainly the igniting change philanthropists and jane she leads with her gut and her heart and her instinct and her humanity and it's very raw and it's very real and so the people who are within that igniting change family are very much the same incredibly humble people uh, very very generous and very very honest yeah so it's been an incredible partnership what's it like for you having worked in in the community for such a long time to watch people like me 
come up and and actually hear these stories, see what your work is in action? I've had the privilege for over 20 years of walking and working alongside First Nations people and I've known uh, Aboriginal people for over 30 years of my life. So it's a very intimate relationship for me and that journey has showed me it's just thing it is an extraordinary culture and deeply you know evolved and so much that the west can learn just on just about any item of what we would call best practice if you go back to first nations communities they can teach so much to the west around whether it's education or health or environment or anything so because of the Northern Territory is so far away, it's, uh, many people on the East Coast are unaware of the strength and the beauty um, of First Nations culture and the, people, and, and the culture that is living and alive today. So what took you up there 30 years ago? What was your involvement? Uh, there's, in remote communities in the Northern Territory, very few have high schools. And so kids from remote areas, if they wanted to continue their schooling, most often and still today have to leave their community to continue high school. There's some provision, but not a lot. So 35 years ago, some of the families and children from Santa Teresa, La Chinchaporta, just out of Alice Springs, were coming to Melbourne and they went to a school that my mother's was, was teaching at. And so uh, that started a beautiful personal relationship. relationship. Yeah. So did you go up there to visit them? Yeah, so we kept a connection through my childhood and then, you know, I trained here in Melbourne and lived here in Melbourne and you know what did you train as a forensic psychologist so I worked at Pentridge prison for a few years and um my you know my family from Santa Teresa you know my sister who I'm very close with Aboriginal sisters kept saying when are you coming to visit so I said I'll come for a year and I didn't return so tell me about the impact when you first got there well I'd been up a number of times to visit and family had been down but it wasn't until I lived in Alice that I and I was living, you know, seeing people that I love every day um, in, con- in sort of a reality which is absolutely shocking. You know, it, the human rights abuses that occur in this day every single minute of every single day are completely, you know, they're, they're completely outrageous. They shouldn't be occurring and they continue to occur today. And I think that's what struck me when I went to Alice Springs and... I was able to sort of, I guess, intimately see the impact of that on people's lives, just basic access to going into a shopping centre and being told to leave, not being able to access health in your first language, going into a schooling and being judged as being an irresponsible parent, people dying all the time, people going to funerals all the time, people living in overcrowding, people having medical things occur that should not, not have occurred and having no sort of cultural ability to to have that addressed in any redressed mm. in any way and that is those experiences are all day every day people live in abject poverty they've been excluded from the mainstream economic system of this country there's absolutely no regard for first nations knowledge systems we don't give people the right to determine their future we don't give people the right to their voice and we certainly don't have anywhere near the level of respect we need for the cultures of the, this land before it was colonised. So that has impacted people in ways and layers and levels that I don't think mainstream Australia understand. It, just about every family is affected by the stolen generation. 
families that I worked with, I've worked with people who are still alive, who were hidden in the carcass of animals as children to stop them from being stolen. I work with people today who were stolen in the stolen generation. I work with people today who have had their children racially murdered. I work with people today who are on dialysis three days a week and because people were put on diets of sugar and tobacco and flour and people who are still kept in an economic sort of prison in a sense and not given a way to engage in mainstream economy. So I was struck by both the physical pain people were experiencing and the ill health as well as the cultural pain. So I think, you know, when we learned about apartheid and when we learned about what went on in the South in America, people are horrified and shocked and yet there's not an understanding like you have in general of... of Australians should be horrified and shocked with Mm. what is happening in Australia today. I work with the traditional owner of Alice Springs, recognised both in Aboriginal and Western law. So she's... They they were successful in the native title claim, so they're recognised in Western law as a native title holders. She's, her family live in a tin shed with no running water, running water that was cut off by the government in Alice Springs, which is the sig- second biggest town in the Northern Territory. Hmm. It does it beggars belief. With what you're doing up there, it's having a huge impact and great results. The greater problem, I suppose, for Australia and the First Nation population is the stereotypes and the perceptions. Is this going to help change that? How is the word going to be spread in terms of children's ground? Look, I think um, we're committed to ensuring a positive representation of First Nations people in an honest way. So I guess there's two things for us that that come back all the time is people want some truth-telling, so that's what the sort of Makarata and Statement from the Heart is about and to ensure voice, and so I think there's that side of work that needs to be done at a national level and supporting the collective voice of First Nations people around that. And the other is shifting this just awful and degrading and stereotypical representation of First Nations people. Mm. They are the longest living cultures in the in the earth. You know, people will go and celebrate the Mayan ruins and go to the pyramids and do. in this land we have the longest living cultures in the world and they are extraordinarily rich and deep. And if people those people who have the privilege of taking the time to get to know it understand that. So certainly we are committed to ensuring that the that an understanding and awareness and an ability to connect with its beautiful cultures is there. And it's not just the work of children's ground. I mean, I'm so fortunate to work in a place where there are incredible numbers of organisations and people and communities doing extraordinary work every single day. So, you know, you can go and have a look at the land rights news from the Central Land Council and have a look at this incredible amount of work and that is happening right around Aboriginal Australia and up through the north and up into Western Australia. And, you know, there is so much to celebrate and see that is positive. We want to be part of contributing to that story of Australia. Who do you sort of deal with in government? And and what sort of support, apart from financial, do you get from the government, if any? We have some fantastic relationships within the Northern Territory government that are growing and the new certainly the new 
Education Minister, who's a First Nations woman, is very, very supportive of Children's Ground. I think what I've found is uh, the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs has supported our work, um, Nigel Scullion, and we've also had support previously through the Labor Party, so when Peter Garrett was the Minister. So across governments we've had support. Um, I think there's a big change in government. We've got um, Minister Ken White, who's a First Nations man, you know, who's in the health ministry, has recently supported Children's Ground and certainly in the Aboriginal, uh, in the Labor Party, we have the uh, Aboriginal caucus of um, Pat Dodson and Malandira McCarthy and Linda Burnley, who are incredible. And I think that that, in a sense, they will have such a very important role in the changing face within government and understanding of Aboriginal affairs. It's about time. Yeah, I think so too. So looking ahead, what was your dream? My dream is that every First Nations child in this country, or every child in this country for that matter, has the opportunity from childhood to exercise their choice and opportunity for quality life. You know, our country is extraordinary. How, we are a country that doesn't have war. We are a country that has opportunity. Um, that should be afforded to every child where they live, regardless of where they live. And our first peoples should be recognised as our first cultures of this land. So where people choose to live, they should have access to quality housing, quality early childhood, quality health, quality economic opportunities, quality health systems. And those systems should be grounded in people's first culture and language wherever they live. So if it's in Melbourne and first people want, you know, it is around their identity, their culture, their voice, as it might be in the Northern Territory, regardless of whether people have still have their first language intact. It should be determined by those first peoples. People know exactly what they want. They want their children to have the very best opportunities. So my dream is that our systems can change and back in the voice and the integrity and the leadership of First Nations people to deliver that on their terms. And how hopeful are you of that happening? I'm more hopeful, particularly as we move along. I think Mainstream Australia wants to engage and celebrate our first history. Mainstream Australia knows that there's a shocking past and that truth-telling does need to occur. And most people want to be able to have that conversation but have it in a way where they're not making a mistake. So mainly people want to know and be engaged but they're very fearful. So we need to build a bridge for non-Aboriginal people to be able to have those conversations. But also everybody wants to celebrate First Peoples, our histories and our knowledge, and, and people want to learn more. So I'm hugely hopeful in terms of mainstream Australia. I think like a lot of social issues, it's our government that's more conservative that needs to play catch up a bit and show some leadership. And I think with the changing number of First Nations people within our parliamentary system, that will start to happen. So I think over the next 20 years, I feel quite hopeful. One final question. What's the one thing that Igniting Change has taught you? It's reinforced the power of humanity and what Igniting Change always says is see the people and that's it. If you connect with people with respect, if you connect with people as equals, if you listen to people's stories, if you break down your own barriers you know, and your own fears and connect one-on-one, then there is so much love and growth that everybody can enjoy and... I think igniting change, it respects and brings dignity. You know, it's just, it's a stunning organisation. 
That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, see the person, not the label.